0: Hey, thank you for listening. Did you know I have a YouTube channel? I have over 130 different videos. I have videos with more scary stories told in the rain, scary stories by a crackling fire, and I also have videos that are less relaxing and more on the scary side. Go check it out, and please don't forget to subscribe. In the YouTube search bar, just type being scared. All right. I used to work at a summer camp in Ontario. While I was technically a camp counselor, I had the added responsibility of performing a lot of the maintenance tasks around the property. This was nice because I could still join in on camp activities if I wanted to. Or if the kids were acting up, I could just leave it to everyone else to deal with and go cut grass or hide out in the workshop tinkering with stuff for a bit. I probably had the best job there, to be honest. The camp was located on the shoreline of a massive lake. There were two rows of cabins, with a path between them leading down to the water, where our dock jutted out into the lake. This is where we kept all our small sailboats, our rescue boat, which was a Boston whaler, and a couple of sea-doos. Behind where the cabins were was mostly forest except for the 5 kilometer trail that led back out to the main road with a few cottages on it. A little ways up this trail, there was a clearing where the staff all kept their cars, and where the buses would park. There was also a large barn that we used as a workshop to build picnic tables and other things the camp might need. We also kept our two ATVs, a John Deere Gator, and a Kubota L-Series tractor with a few attachments in here. These were mostly used to move things around the camp and for various maintenance jobs, Changeover was probably the best time to be there. It was when the previous group of kids had all left, but the next group hadn't arrived yet, so we pretty much had the whole place to ourselves for the weekend. We would usually bust our asses all day Saturday to get all the actual work out of the way so that we could spend the night partying and just sleep most of Sunday. There is one changeover weekend, though, that none of us will ever forget. It started out normally. All the kids loaded onto the buses, the cabins were checked and cleaned, while I took the gator and a trailer into the woods to collect more firewood, just like we had done hundreds of times before. When I returned from my expedition, I grabbed an axe from the barn and began splitting the logs I had cut up with a chainsaw when one of the other staff members came on the radio. Hey, did anyone else hear that noise out in the lake? She asked. I admitted that I hadn't, but judging by the responses of the rest of the staff, they had all heard it. I figured it was just a moose calling across the lake, and I didn't hear it because the barn was further back than all of the other buildings. I continued chopping and stacking firewood in the back of the barn, and after I was done, I took my toolbox and got on one of the ATVs and drove down to the cabins. By this point, the other staff had finished cleaning, and all I really had to do was make a few minor repairs, and we would be done for the night. At dinner that night, all anyone could talk about was the mysterious noise out in the lake. They described it as sounding like a very distorted, elephant call. We all sort of laughed it off, though, as the alcohol was starting to take effect, and no one really took it seriously. As the only sober one left, it was my responsibility to start the fire that night. I brought the gator down with a load of wood in the dump box and began to light the fire while everyone else cleaned up from dinner inside. Slowly the other staff finished up and began to trickle out to join me at the fire pit. It was a full moon and the fire pit was right next to the lake so you could see all the way across. The lake almost seemed to glow in the moonlight and the twinkle of the lights from the cottages on the other side made the whole scene quite magical. Everyone sat around the fire drinking and laughing, telling stories of who their favorite kid was, or which kid they hated the most, basically talking about exactly what you would expect camp counselors to talk about when not on duty. Later that night, one of the girls brought out her guitar and sang for us while the impromptu couples of the night cuddled around the fire. I, of course, always seemed to be left out of the hookup culture, around the camp. Maybe it was because of my role that they saw me as more of a senior staff member. I don't know. Either way, none of the girls ever wanted to hook up with me. As a result of not being otherwise engaged in romance, as the music played, I gazed out across the lake. I could see the navigation lights of a small boat coming towards us from across the lake and as it drew closer I could hear the engines and it sounded like it was going at full throttle. I ignored it for a while, since it was possible to drive into town by boat through here, so seeing a boat late at night wasn't out of the ordinary. What was out of the ordinary was when the boat got closer to shore and didn't seem to show any signs of slowing down. I pointed this out to one of the guys sitting next to me, and he stood up to look. A few others joined him, and even the girl playing guitar stopped and turned around. With the music stopped, we could all hear the boat engine running at full RPM as it headed for shore. There was a loud crack as the boat hit the dock of a neighboring cottage, which deflected it back towards us, where it missed the beach entirely, and ran up onto the rocks a little ways down the shore and out of sight from us. The engines sounded awful as they were now out of the water, "'and sucking air, but they didn't turn off or even idle down. "'Because of this, I immediately assumed the driver had to be unconscious, "'and I grabbed a first-aid kit out of the main cabin "'as well as the keys for the Boston Whaler and ran down to our dock. "'A few of the other staff who were relatively sober came with me "'as we cast off and drove a little ways down to the shoreline to the runaway boat. "'When we got there, one of the other staff jumped on board,' and immediately shut the engine down. Using the searchlight on our boat, we could now get a good look at this mystery boat. It was an older Sea ray bowrider, and it looked pretty thrashed. The windshield on the driver's side had been smashed, and the back of the driver's seat had been ripped off and was laying on the floor near the back of the boat. There also seemed to be blood splatters toward the rear of the boat and over the top of the engine compartment. The most disturbing part, though, was that no one was on board. From the evidence that we had seen, it appeared as though the driver had been ripped out of the boat by something, while driving at full speed. We called 911, and when the police arrived, they determined that the boat should still float, and we helped them to tow it over to our dock, where they could get a better look at it. They figured some cottager had been driving recklessly out on the lake and had been thrown from the boat, and we all agreed that that seemed like the most logical explanation. A search was put out for a missing person on the lake that night, and within an hour, a helicopter was hovering over the lake, scanning it with a searchlight. The next day the police were able to track down the owner of the boat who came to inspect it. Him and his whole family were accounted for, so none of them had been the person driving the boat the previous night someone had stolen this poor man's boat and had been ripped out of it while trying to get away. That's when I remembered the distorted elephant noise the other staff had been talking about. The damage to the boat did look an awful lot like some large creature had taken a swipe at the boat and ripped the driver right out. I of course kept my thoughts to myself as I didn't want to look stupid, but later that night, after the police had the boat hauled away, Another one of the staff mentioned the same theory, that whatever had made that noise had attacked that stolen boat and killed the driver. Or maybe the driver was trying to get away from the creature and had stolen the boat as a means of escape. We all talked about the incident for weeks after that speculating on what happened. Given the circumstances and local legends, our running theory is that some unfortunate soul ran across a wendigo in the woods and in their attempt to escape had found this boat with the keys in it but was ripped from the boat as they were taking off from the dock leaving the boat to continue on with no driver as the person was devoured. Of course something else more realistic could have happened disturbs me to this day. Winter is long and cold up here, but fun nonetheless. As a child, I would stay outside all day playing in the snow, and then have to soak my hands in warm water for ten minutes, just to get the feeling back in them. Those were the best times of my life. However, the winter I was in fifth grade, something horrible would be set in motion in my town. School had just let out for Christmas break when the first body was found. His name was Mike Keller, and he was a second grader from Mount Vernon. The reports on the news said he had been beaten severely, but he also had multiple stab wounds that were determined to be the cause of death. I can't say that the murder caused an uproar. That would come later, but it certainly got folks' attention. It didn't put a dent in my thick head. If my mom mentioned it to me, I don't recall it. My usual life continued unabated. Day after day, I would spend my time playing in the snow, only taking breaks to eat and play Minecraft. Things didn't really ramp up until another kid was found. This one turned out to be from my neck of the woods. The police reports echoed that of the previous murder. Although... The stab wounds were far more numerous than on the body of Keller. Now was when the parents, county-wide, started taking the threat more seriously. I'm sure every kid got the same speech as I did, warning of the dangers of talking to people that you didn't know. When everyone would discover the truth behind the murders, it would be much more horrible than they expected. If any kid paid attention to their parents' warnings, I wasn't one of them. My mom's words went in one ear and out the other. Since the snow had long melted after Christmas Day, I made plans to meet up with my friends at our hand-built fort in the woods. But when I got there, the only people around were two kids I didn't know very well. One was a seventh grader and the other was a year behind me. He went to the same school as I did and the rumor was that he had been held back twice. From the looks of him, the rumors were true despite only being slightly taller than me he was already showing signs of a mustache when it comes to the older kid i didn't know much about him other than he had a reputation for being mean to younger kids so the second i saw him i got very nervous the two of them whose names i'm not going to mention here for the reason you will soon see were acting like they were my best friends despite never talking to me before. When the older boy asked me if my friends were on their way, I foolishly told the truth. If they weren't already at the fort, they probably wouldn't be coming. This must have been the answer they were hoping for, because as soon as I said it, they began their attack. The older boy sucker-punched me to the ground. I came very close to passing out. Now I know if I had... I would have been number three on their hit list. But somehow, I stayed awake. I used a nearby tree to get to my feet just in time, to see the younger kid pull a folding knife from his pocket. The older kid was swinging a wooden bat around. When they saw me stand up, the older boy ran up to me and swung for my head. I ducked, but he was close enough to rip a lock of hair out when the bat hit the tree above me. I figured the kid with the knife was coming after me next so I booked it out of there. My legs were still a little rubbery, but I knew if I stopped, I was dead. The older kid was right on my heels, and my lungs were burning terribly. However, I was fortunate to live on the edge of the woods, and made it inside my house before they caught up with me. I ran into my mom, and I breathlessly tried to explain what had just happened. She understood enough to be upset, and yelled for my dad to call the police. My mom quickly explained the situation to him, and he relayed it to the dispatcher. The police came quick, and I told them what had happened and who did it. They had no problem finding the boys. They must have known it was over for them, and they both went home and waited. The brutality of the murders was taken into consideration, and it was decided to keep them in custody until their trials. Naturally, the DA wanted to try them as adults, but they were just a bit too young. Since each boy was blaming the other, despite both of them being responsible, they were tried separately. Neither showed any remorse, and as a result, they were given life for each murder and 15 to 25 for the attempt on my life. Had this happened just a few years earlier, they both would have likely been given life without parole for each murder charge. But recent legislation states that an offender cannot be given such a sentence if they committed their crime as a youthful offender. Ultimately, the legislation mattered not. Both boys were transferred to the adult system at 21, and because of crimes they committed inside, they probably won't ever get out. And that's the way I like it. It was glaringly obvious to everyone around at the time that they weren't right in the head. It's just terrible that two young boys and almost myself had to lose their lives before something was done about them. I was just a kid of about 15 or 16 when this happened. This was in the days when just about every kid in school, or around the neighborhood, had some type of part-time job. It was just a given that once you were old enough to push a lawnmower, shovel a driveway, or rake leaves, you spent a portion of your day working for your own money. As this was decades before the invention of the internet, having a job was something kids just accepted, and some jumped into it with relish. It was a great excuse to get out of the house and make a little pocket money in the process. My first part-time job was typical for that era. I had a newspaper route. That will tell you how long ago it was. I'm in my late 40s now, but can still remember riding my bicycle to the corner to collect the bundle of papers that had been dropped there, counting them out to make sure I hadn't been shorted insert whatever flyers or ads were included for that day, and peddling door-to-door for blocks to deliver them. Right here I can tell you that all of the old movie stuff you see of the kid on his bike zipping merrily down the street, chucking newspapers blindly in the direction of homes as he passes, is complete bullshit. If a kid back then went meandering around the neighborhood flinging newspapers from his bag all willy-nilly he'd get his ass fired in a hurry. It was kind of a big deal to be a good paper boy. You knew not to ride on the grass, let your bike drop onto anyone's bushes after hopping off, and to keep clear of the flower beds. This was the suburbs where practically everyone obsessed over how nice their yard looked. So, the better you treated your customers, and their yards the better the tips were when you collected the money each month. And some, even bigger ones, come Christmas. They even had trophies for the best paperboy in the county. I even won a trophy once. The thing was two feet tall, made of fake gold and marble, with a figurine of a paperboy on top, delivery bag and all, holding a rolled newspaper raised to the sky. This shit was taken seriously, Monday through Friday, the papers were delivered in the afternoon. Saturday and Sunday were the only days back then that the newspaper was delivered in the morning. When I figured out that the bundles were usually dropped as early as 5 a.m., that's when I'd get up to start my route. It wasn't that I was gunning for another trophy, it's just that if you got up that early, it'd still be dark by the time you came home. Then, you could just crash back into bed, and wake up at your leisure to a free Saturday or Sunday, as you'd never had to get up in the first place. Paperboy logic. This took place on a Sunday. The Sunday papers sucked, to the extent that they were the thickest and required the most inserts, including the comic section, which was still called the funnies. So I often had to take two trips, leaving half of my bundle by the street post on the corner, to deliver the first part for the route, and then go back for the rest. It could be a pain in the ass, but it was better than getting a hernia dragging a two-ton newspaper bag along behind you. The first half of my route was almost entirely apartments. That made for quick deliveries. I could zip into these small, two-story apartment buildings, set the paper down in front of each door, and zip right back out. Eight deliveries in less than a minute. The second half of my route had houses spread out and around the then sparsely developed area. Right in the middle of my route was what we called the Horseshoe. It was a dirt road that formed a U-shape, with the upper prongs connecting to the main road. You'd go down the Horseshoe on one side to curve around, and go up the other side when on my route. There were only five houses spread along the Horseshoe, with large gaps between them. There was maybe one or two streetlights along the way, mostly obscured by the branches of overhanging trees, so it was usually pretty dark. If you didn't know the way by heart, you'd be riding into the grove of trees or roll right into a ditch. That was the main reason that I loved nights with a full moon. The light of the moon shone down on the houses along this dirt road, making it easier to see. Sometimes it wouldn't even seem like it was still nighttime if the moon was really bright and there wasn't any cloud cover. In the winter, with all the fresh snow everywhere, a full moon meant a very well-lit route. What follows is the one time I wasn't all that crazy about there being a full moon. Dead center of the horseshoe's curve was a single house perched on a small hill. It was a nice two-story house with flowers running the length of the porch, a bench swing at one end near the front door, a two-car garage, the works. Ideal suburbia. The only thing about this house was that it had the steepest driveway in the neighborhood, so getting up the darn thing was a chore, even if you had good momentum on your bike starting out. Once to the top of Mount Driveway, I would just roll up the paper, slide it into the mail slot in the side door by the garage, give it a quick tap to send it inside, and then turn around and enjoy a fast glide down the driveway at top speed, even without pedaling. It didn't go quite like that this time, as there was a full moon that night. It was pretty bright, even for five in the morning. Lots of houses were painted white or light colors so they reflected the moonlight well. There was also no wind, which was a huge plus. No worry about the wind yanking the paper out of your hand before you could get it rolled up, and no fighting against the wind either going through your route, or coming home. When I rounded the curve at the end of the horseshoe, I was making good time. Even with the Sunday supplement doing its best to weigh me down, I had already delivered the first half of the route, and was looking forward to finishing quick, so I could return home to bed. I pedaled up the steep driveway, only having to stop once to push myself along with my sneakers. I dropped the kickstand and dismounted, already digging into my bag for a paper. At the top of the driveway, the whole front of the house practically glowed in the moonlight. Bright white paint, red shutters, all those flowers... It looked kind of pretty. That's when I heard the creak. I stopped, not certain what I had heard. It was definitely metal, like the hinges on a gate being opened, but there were no gates nearby that I knew of, and none of the houses on the horseshoe had fenced in yards. Then, I heard the creak again, which rose in pitch to a squeak. This time, I recognized the sound immediately. It was the sound of a swing moving. I had been to every playground in town growing up, so I knew the sound that chains make when you use a swing. There was a kid's playground not far from where I was, but I doubted I could hear one of the swings from that distance. Besides, a quick glance confirmed that the playground was deserted, as it would be at five in the morning. The moonlight made that view clear. Then I heard the squeak again, lasting a bit longer. The hair stood up on the back of my neck as I realized that the sound was close. I looked back to the house and saw the bench swing at the end of the porch, suspended from two chains. It was rocking back and forth. There was no wind to push it and there would have to be quite a gust to budge something that heavy anyway. Then, the swing picked up speed, as if someone on it was pumping their legs to get it going. My heart started pounding like crazy. There was nobody on the swing. Not a soul. It was empty, and there was no place to hide beneath it where someone could reach up to push it, as a prank. The swing was just swinging back and forth on its own. I was completely terrified, but couldn't look away. What the hell was I seeing? There, in the light of the full moon, an empty bench swing was rocking higher and higher, back and forth, with nobody sitting in it. That's when I heard it. A giggle. I heard the giggle of a little girl perhaps four or five years old at the oldest. My jaw dropped open, and I was physically shaking. Let me emphasize that there was nothing sinister about this giggle at all. This wasn't a menacing laugh or a piercing cackle. This was the mischievous, tittering giggle of a very young girl at play. It was coming right from the empty bench swing. I couldn't breathe. I had never felt so frightened in my life. Anybody else at that point would have just run, or ridden away on their bike, pedaling as fast as they could go. But no. I was a good paper boy, and I had the trophy to prove it. Acting solely on reflex, for want of another way to explain it, I yanked one of the bulky Sunday papers from my bag and fumbled with it, trying desperately to roll it. I needed to get rid of that damn thing as fast as I could, so I could get out of there. The dead air just above the swing let out what sounded like a short chuckle, as if whatever was laughing had tried to cover its mouth. The swing kept swinging. It was gibbering like some kind of lunatic as I fought with the paper. Fold, damn it, fold! Why won't you fold over? I eventually turned with the half-rolled newspaper to push it through the mail slot. It wouldn't fit. It was way too thick. Why did the damned Sunday papers have to be so huge? I pushed, pulled back, and pushed again, doing little more than shredding the front page with failed attempt after failed attempt. Frantically, I kept glancing back at the swing to see if anyone was there. But there was no one. Just the empty swing, still rocking steadily. I gave up and just rammed the stupid paper into the slot as hard as I could. Squashed into a rumpled mess, half in and half out of the slot, I abandoned the newspaper and scrambled for my bike. I couldn't even get on it. I was shaking so badly and freaking out so much that it was like I had forgotten how to ride a bike. I ran like hell down that steep driveway, dragging the bike behind me by one of the handlebars. Once I reached the dirt road, I finally was able to get onto my bike, but it felt like something had grabbed it, holding it back. I looked down to see the kickstand was still down, digging a thin rut into the dirt beside me. I smashed the thing back with my heel and pedaled for all I was worth. There wasn't another sound of giggling, but the swing rocked a little higher, as if my terror was providing great amusement. For whatever sat there, I could still hear the chains on the swing squeak as I took off. At the next house, I didn't give a tinker's damn about paperboy delivery protocol. I just chucked the fat Sunday edition at the door by their garage and was already zooming off before the thing hit the ground. Same for the next house. And the next one. Just like in the movies, right? I think by the time I completed my route that morning, I may have gone back to delivering the newspapers properly. I don't remember now. I didn't remember then. All I could remember was that empty bench swing and that disembodied giggle. When I got home, I did fall back into bed, but I didn't go to sleep. I just stared at the ceiling and felt readily scared until the sun came up. The following week... It was business as usual. Afternoon deliveries, same as normal. And come the weekend, I made sure there were fresh batteries in my Walkman so that I could drown out any unearthly giggling with the songs of Kenny Loggins or Michael Jackson. I never did hear the giggle again, not that I wanted to. The swing only ever rocked when a person was in it or when we were in the midst of a January blizzard. Even then, it only moved a little under the pounding wind. Like I said, it was heavy. Nothing else creepy or unusual ever happened on my paper route again. Even with what had happened, I realized it could have been worse. I mean, that giggle wasn't followed by any sudden footsteps as an invisible ghost child leapt off the swing to come running after me. That would have made for one hell of a story, but most likely one that ended with me suffering heart failure or winding up in a mental institution. To this day, I have no explanation for that giggle. Some say I was being pranked. Others tell me it was a spirit or a sprite of some kind. All I can tell you is, I know what it's like to be scared by a prank or unnerved by a ghost story. Later in life, I even had a panic attack a few times, so I know what it's like to feel scared, but nothing ever has left me as scared as I was that Sunday morning under the full moon when I heard that giggle. A few years back, my friends and I decided to see the country. We had grown up around Sacramento area, and as much as we loved our native Cali, we knew damn well that the lower west coast is hardly a decent representation of the United States. Apparently, there's a huge stretch of land between the coasts called America, or at least that's what some would have you believe. But either way, I didn't want to go off to college and into full-time work Without having a story or two to tell my dorm mates. So, cut to about three days into the journey, and we're on our way to our first real stop in Boise, Idaho. My buddy's hooked his iPhone up to the minivan speakers via an auxiliary cable, and is in the process of playing every single road trip related song he can possibly find. It might have been annoying if his music taste wasn't so damn good. Keep your eyes on the road, and your hands upon the wheel. We all roared along with Jim Morrison, roadhouse blues blasting so loud I could barely hear the van's engine. It was so much fun. We dreamed up the ultimate road trip, and now we were actually living it. Didn't even need a beer to feel the buzz of it. Just a few miles outside of town, we see someone standing by the side of the road in the distance. It's important to remember the frame of mind we're in, Romanticizing the road. I mean, I would never normally stop to pick up a hitchhiker. I've watched way too many horror films, but since there were four of us packed into that van, a kind of collective bravado had taken us over. So as we pass the dude and see that he actually has his thumb out, we collectively flip. I stop the van in the middle of the road and slowly start reversing up towards where this guy stood. Hey, do you need a ride, dude? He instantly looked elated. He obviously had no luck for a good few hours, and a van full of teenagers was like a godsend to him. I could kind of see why people might pass him. He looked a little rough with this weird kind of young-old vibe going on, like his clothes were fairly modern, but his skin was leathery as hell, like he had spent all day every day underneath Utah or Nevada's sun. Are y'all going to Boise? He asked in a gravely voice. Sure are, dude. Hop in. So the guy tells us his name is Jimmy, and that he's actually from Idaho originally, but has spent a lot of time out of state for work. We asked him what he does for a living, and he gave us some half-assed answer about being a contractor. He said his last job was really constrictive, and he was real happy to get away from it and was just heading back into Boise to see some old friends. He starts telling us stories from his time on the road, and it sounded like he was something of a wild child in the early 80s, how he went to California looking for work, and ended up getting in a few scrapes with the law. At one point, one of my buddies asks Jimmy if he spent any time inside. I really don't know what he expected the answer to be, but all of a sudden, Jimmy's tone changes completely as he shoots my friend a daggered look. No, and I don't ever intend to, he replied contemptuously. The atmosphere in the van shifted. It was super awkward for a few miles, but the conversation soon returned to normal, with us swapping stories and sharing laughs. After about an hour or so of continuous driving, we're getting closer and closer to Boise, but it was around then that we hit our first serious speed bump. I look in the rearview mirror and see an Idaho State Police cruiser. As it's speeding up behind us, I move over a little to let it pass. Only it doesn't. Then, Jimmy saw the cop car and ducks down in the back seat. We start laughing and joking about him being a fugitive or something. Only he didn't join in the laughter... He just stayed down in the seat and didn't make a sound. As soon as the cop car's lights turned on and the siren blared across the highway, I knew what was about to happen. It was like I could see the whole thing pan out in my head in slow motion, and I was powerless to do anything to stop it. It was far too late for that. I actually start slowing down to pull over, purely wishful thinking on my part. I expected to hear Jimmy say something, and I was right. Only it wasn't him that spoke first. "'What the hell? You have a gun?' one of my buddies cries. "'You keep this thing moving. Don't stop for nothing.' I hear him cock the hammer on his weapon. I didn't even turn around to see what it was. "'You slow this van down, and I'm going to kill every single one of you. Do you understand?' I've never been so scared in my entire life. I could hear the cop shouting over the loudspeaker. Driver, pull the vehicle over to the side of the road right now. But I couldn't. We were trapped. It was only about then that I checked the fuel gauge out of habit. It turned out to be a godsend. In our foolish revelry, we had passed numerous gas stations we really should have stopped at to refuel. Now we only had a few miles worth of gas. All we'd have to do was wait for it to run out. I remember feigning a kind of solidarity with the guy, assuring him that I wouldn't pull over until we passed state lines on the other side of Boise. My buddies must have thought I was nuts. They didn't know that all we had to do was run out the clock. Crap, we're running out of gas. I'm sorry dude, but I'm going to have to pull over. Your best chance is to jump out and run. Run like hell and never look back. Jimmy ate it up. It was an Oscar-winning performance, if I do say so myself. He actually patted me on the shoulder as I slowed the van down and edged over to the roadside. You're a good kid. You'll do all right, he said. I remember his breath smelling rotten. When I finally pulled the car over... One of my buddies slides the van door open, and Jimmy just hauls ass into the trees. One of the cops jumps out, securing us in the van, while his partner got this big dog from the back seat of their cruiser and chased Jimmy into the woods. We were there for an hour or two while the cops searched our van, but we didn't have anything illegal on us. Thank God we had finished all the beer we had managed to wrangle the night before or we might have actually had something to worry about. Once it was established that the guy was basically holding us hostage, they let us go, and one of the cops actually tells me that I did the right thing. They didn't catch him, and as far as I know, they never have. But whatever the case, I know Jimmy can't have been the dude's real name. No one was hurt, nothing was damaged, but still... I have zero intention of ever picking up a hitchhiker, ever again. Me and my friends are grunge freaks. We started out on Nirvana and Soundgarden, eventually discovering more obscure bands like Mudhoney, and Melvin's and the Screaming Trees. Anyone who knows anything about grunge will tell you that it all started in Seattle. How this spontaneous new genre sprang out of the ashes of post-punk to take the world by storm, and it all happened within like a few square miles. So naturally, Seattle is like a mecca for grunge fans, and after years of planning and false commitment, we finally got our crap together and went on a road trip to our sacred city. That's how we ended up on the Wyoming interstate. So we're just driving along, singing along to Alice Chains songs, when the next thing I know, I can see red and blue flashes in my rearview mirror. My buddies in the back seat spin around, seeing the same thing that I did, an unmarked vehicle with one of those attachable emergency lights on the top. As I start to pull over, I'm wondering where in the hell this cop car came from. We were on this long stretch of open road and could see for miles around us. It was pretty unnerving that it had managed to creep up on us like that. But you know how it is. Traffic cops tend to stay out of sight in little rest areas or whatever. Their speedometers at the ready. Now I was well within the speed limit, but I was still worried. I'd be lying if I said we didn't have anything on us that we shouldn't have, but that was all buried in our bags in the trunk, and even then, it wasn't exactly enough to charge us with. So I just got my driver's license ready on my lap and kept my hands at ten and two like a good little citizen. The cop turns off his lights and then gets out of the unmarked car, walking along the dusty roadside towards us. He's wearing civilian clothes a baseball cap, aviator sunglasses, and a checkered shirt. But I can clearly see the utility belt and badge that he's wearing. When he knocks on my window, I promptly roll it down, smiling, while I give him my cheeriest, Good afternoon, officer. I'm no bootlicker, but I'm not giving this guy an excuse to ruin our road trip. What follows probably isn't exactly what was said that day but it's as best as I can remember. Afternoon, officer. How can I help you? Driver's license and registration. He demands curtly. Sure thing. I take one hand off the steering wheel and hand him my license. He takes a long, careful look, first at my license, and then at me. Detroit, huh? He finally said dismissively. You're a long way from home, son. What's your business in Wyoming? Uh, we're actually on a road trip, sir. Headed out towards Washington. Seattle, to be specific. What for? Uh, just because, I guess. Always wanted to see the West Coast. Just because? The cop mockingly interjected. Maybe see some of California... My words broke off. I really didn't like where the whole thing was going. Any weapons in the car? No, sir. Drugs or alcohol? No, sir, I replied without hesitation, but the answer didn't satisfy him. I could feel his steely gaze from behind his mirrored sunglasses. They made him seem like more of a machine than a man. I'm going to need y'all to step out of the vehicle. His voice was cold. What? what What for? Don't make me tell you again, son. I turned to my buddies in the back seat, and they looked as worried as I felt. Slowly, we did as we were told and got out of my car, walking over to the side of the road and grouping together near the verge. It was then that I actually got a good look at the unmarked car that the cop was driving. It was an old Dodge pickup. I mean, really old. It looked like it might fall apart if the thing drove faster than 40. Something interest you about my vehicle, son? Uh, no, sir. I lied, thinking that their department must have been seriously underfunded. Then eyes front. One of my buddies shot me a look as if to say, "'What the hell is this guy's deal?' But I just shook my head, figuring if we just play along, we might get out of there faster. "'I'm gonna need to see the passenger's IDs, too,' the cop said suddenly. "'Mine's in the car,' one friend said. The other said the same. "'You didn't take your IDs out to show a cop at a goddamn traffic stop? Are you mentally disabled?' I, uh... No. Then go get him! Then, to my complete shock, the cop takes his revolver out from his hip holster and points it at one of my buddies. One of my friends, Turn, looks down at the barrel of the revolver and freezes in place, pure fear in his eyes. I'm not going to shoot you, but I need to cover my ass just in case you pull a gun out that back seat. The cop said with a grin. Now go on. Go get him. It was about this point that I decided to make a formal complaint against the cop. I was scared, sure, but I was really pissed off, too. Whatever backwater county this was, their volunteer sheriff program obviously needed some thorough vetting. I didn't know how much good it would do, but I had to do something. This asshole had to pay. After he gets my buddy's IDs, he takes them back to his truck and starts writing stuff down on a notepad, obviously all of our personal information. Then, he starts talking to someone, but not on a radio as you expect. All he had was a cell phone in his hand. When he finishes, he gets out, and then doesn't even walk all the way over to us before just tossing our IDs into the dirt. Get the hell out of Wyoming, he spat before getting back into his truck and speeding off into the distance, leaving us choking on a cloud of dirt. Once he's out of sight, we start cursing him out, raging about how we're going to make a formal complaint once we're back home from our trip. So cut to about an hour later, and we're only about 50 miles further into our journey, when another set of red and blue lights appears in my rearview mirror. We just straight up panic at this point and actually debate whether or not to just try to outrun this psycho since there's no way his old truck could keep up with us. But once we work out that it's an actual marked unit this time and evidently not the same asshole we pull over and repeat the entire goddamn process. Only it doesn't go quite the same way. I'll just tell you what you need to know. At some point I mention to this uniformed cop that I've already been stopped like just an hour before. He looks confused and asks where we had been pulled over. I didn't know any place names by heart, but I insisted it was less than a 100 miles back the way we just came. When the uniformed cop tells us that this is impossible, it takes all my will not to ask this guy if all Wyoming cops are as incompetent as this. But then he finishes his sentence. I'm the only highway patrol in this county right now. If it wasn't me who pulled you over, I really don't know who did. We described the guy who pulled us over to the uniformed cop, told him the vehicle type, even the color of this asshole's mustache, but the cop has no clue who we were talking about. Then it hit us. The guy wasn't highway patrol. He wasn't even a volunteer deputy. To this very day, we have no idea who it was that pulled us over on that stretch of interstate. Our complaints to the state police went nowhere, as far as I know. They never found the guy to charge him with impersonating an officer. The lesson being, even though it might piss them off, Always ask for ID from cops who pull you over, and be sure to take a damned good look at it too. There are some real psychos out there.